All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, Nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone, welcome back to the first inaugural episode of Zero X Bell Curve. This is the mashup that, that you didn't know you needed between uh, Dan Smith and Westy here from uh, the BlockWorks analyst team and uh, the, the sometimes host of Xerox Research. So, guys, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Why don't we start with kind of a, a high level topic today, but then we can delve down into some specifics. So, I want to talk to you guys and get your high-level thoughts on airdrops. So airdrops have been getting some renewed uh, interest this week. There's been some sort of funny activity going on on both Stargrate and ZK Sync the last couple of days. So in the past seven days, uh, there's been $480 million in bridge volume on Stargate. And in the last seven days, $195 million worth of uh, volume incoming for in ZK Sync, the uh, ZK Sync era at, at number two. And yeah, the general consensus is that this is sibling sibling or sibling and uh it's it kind of just raises the question of maybe we could just have a discussion about uh sort of what should the function of airdrops be i think we saw a pretty interesting battle and very different strategies play out earlier this year between arbitrum and optimism both had very different strategies and i just kind of put the high level question to both you guys how do you generally think of airdrops if you're writing like a best in class sort of playbook for let's say an aspiring roll-up how would you advise them to do it yeah, that's it's it's an interesting question because it's pretty open ended and quite frankly unanswered at this point. Now you've seen the OG airdrops where it's like user protocol from the early days and then we'll reward users. This is kind of the the Uniswap model, like they airdrop to their LPs. Um, then you kind of saw an evolution of hey, well, instead of just giving the token away to people who have used the protocol, why don't we incentivize continued use? And so you saw like Compound kind of pioneer this uh, by incentivizing borrowers with comp tokens. Um, and then ever since that, you know, you saw explosion of DeFi summer and a whole onslaught of different ways that protocols can throw tokens at users and an attempt to attract uh, sticky, sticky users. Um, the Stargate example is a pretty hilarious one because if you go over to DeFi Llama, click their bridges tab uh, and just check out the activity for you know various bridges. Uh, and they have pretty much every bridge listed here. Stargate is far and away the leader when it comes to the number of transactions, but depending on the day, they don't always even lead in 24-hour bridge volume. Um, But the number of transactions is where things just get hilarious. So uh, just looking at our, you know, today is July 6th, so random day, uh, but this is is shamelessly consistent. Uh, If you go over to this tab, far right says number of transactions in the uh, last 24 hours. So coming in at third is Hop Protocol with an honest 6,700 transactions. Coming in at second is currently ZK Sync's, uh, their bridge. And that comes in second at 8,300 transactions. And then coming in first by an absolute mile uh, is Stargate with 282,000 transactions. Like it's it's just not even close. Um, and so it's it, like the... The size gap between you know Stargate and everybody else, even if you combined up every bridge and said how many transactions in the last 24 hours, it's still an order of a magnitude difference. So it's just uh, it's funny to kind of watch these things go. And funny enough, I was actually tearing through some avalanche data uh, earlier this week, and the most frequently used transaction uh, contract, uh, like the the if you like basically look at activity based on the two address, so like the receiving contract or address uh, of a transaction. Since the start of the year, the most hit contract is none other than the Stargate Bridge. So um, it's it's just funny to see where this stretches to. And it comes to like pumping these daily active user numbers. But, um, you know, basically, uh, this is something that exists and we're going to have to kind of kind of deal with. But at the end of the day, if Stargate successfully attracts a host of users to their platform by doing this, then you know what? Maybe maybe it's a good thing. Yeah, to me, there's basically two major buckets that you want when it comes to an airdrop. The first is incentivizing sticky activity. I think a lot of airdrops in the past have have incentivized activity in general, but as soon as the airdrop ended, all the activity sort of went away 
So I think focusing on more like sticky activity and that can be done having like multiple airdrops kind of like blur has like their seasons. So doing it over time, I think is a good way to do that. Um, as well as like, I think sometimes, you know, having the allure of a future airdrop is sometimes better than having a specific airdrop itself, because then, you know, people can basically do math and understand what their ROI is and how much investment they need to put in. Whereas if it's sort of like invisible, people will, will put up more capital at risk and have more activity over a longer period of time. And so I think that incentivizes more sticky activity. And then beyond that is like finding quality holders of your token. So I think with that comes finding actual like organic users of your protocol. If you have something like Arbitrum's airdrop, there was a lot of like third parties who were able to look into um, the data when it came to the airdrop and found that a lot of addresses that were very clearly sibling the airdrop were given like a pretty sizable portion of the, the airdrop ARB. And so being able to find quality token holders, like actual real organic users of the protocol who are less likely to like sell the token or more likely to accumulate and be uh, good actors in the system. I think those are like the two key components uh, to a quality airdrop. I, I feel like it's this thing that's very easy to say in in practice, very difficult to actually do. I guess you have to start high level from the perspective of the protocol and you have to say, what do I want to incentivize? What is the action and outcome that I want to do? And then what's the best way to actually do that? I think one of the, right now, it's very popular to do these sort of post-mortem analyses on yield farming and say, oh my gosh, look at how much liquidity these protocols were giving away. Look at how much it, first of all, it cost them to acquire an average user. And by the way, everyone just started dumping the tokens. This was a lose-lose. What a, what a dumb thing for these protocols to do. I think the one shining benefit that yield farming had uh, or airdrops have is that it's very simple. It's very simple. And I kind of have this one um, experience that I'm drawing on here, which is designing sales comp plans, which if there's like one or two of you out there who have tried to actually design a sales comp plan, you're nodding your head aggressively because it's the, it should be super easy. And it's one of the most difficult things to do and get right. But the guiding principle of a sales comp plan is that it should be extremely simple in terms of, you know, if I sell X, this is how much I get paid. And I feel like that's the one, uh, you know, sort of guiding light just about in terms of how token incentives have played out so far. Now, I think it's a bear market and bear markets are typically the time that you have cloud cover to fix things that are broken. People are adding, thinking about adding a lot of complexity, which I think is good, but there's a dual edged sword for complexity because you can get a lot more granular, but it also means you have to be, there are a lot more assumptions when you make something uh, complex and you have a lot more room to be wrong. So I guess, I mean, what do you guys think about that kind of from a high level? And then let's try to get tactical and give protocols out there advice. Like what are examples that you've seen protocols execute this well? And you know, what would you, what kind of activity, you know, when you say sticky activity, how do you actually end up doing that in practice? Yeah, no, that, that's a really good point. And you kind of mentioned the trade-off between airdrops and like long-term liquidity provision. Uh, so if you think about somebody like Curve, you know, they had a pretty good token allocation, 33% to team and investors with 67% to uh, the DAO and community. So that's uh, so kind of the area you generally want to see. And they had actually a very small airdrop, but a very large portion of that went to like long-term liquidity provision. And to your point of what do I want? Like what is important to my protocol? The answer to them was very much so liquidity and as it is for most DEXs. So they kind of built a tokenomic system that says, all right, well, we need to pump out a ton of incentives uh, and then we're going to create some sort of like a locking mechanism that kind of reels back in some of those tokens. Of course, there's a whole box to unpack there about you know why they their model works while a lot of these other VE token models failed. Um, but broadly, you know, they they said, what's our most important thing? Liquidity. Well, let's go ahead and you know design a, basically a token structure that is purchasing that into perpetuity is is effectively what they did. Um, and so that's kind of like an interesting model between trading off between pure airdrops and long term incentives. Uh, but when it comes to something that we've seen more recently, you know, Blur kind of pioneered this point system where instead of just like accruing the tokens in real time, you're accruing points that will, as presumably it was the idea, like these points will, you know, increase the size of my airdrop. Uh, and so to Wesley's point earlier, it's sometimes the allure of, a, of an airdrop is the, actually the most beneficial piece. And like we really saw that with Arbitrum where like, hey, a token's coming. Hey, a token's coming, you know, six months, eight months, 12 months later. The token finally shows up and now that they've like gradually built up so much usership then you know, we, we are seeing a fairly sticky liquidity there and 
you know, I, I would probably say a, a large portion of Arbitrum's success is actually having apps worth using. Granted, most of them are like perpetual futures exchanges, but uh, it's, it's uh, sticky nonetheless. Uh, yeah, I guess there's there's a tip. If you want sticky liquidity, somehow incorporate gambling. Um, but but we're seeing that kind of spill over into the Solana ecosystem as well, right? So MarginFi just announced their point system model, which again, they didn't say it was for an airdrop, but that is presumably what these points are being racked up for. Uh, however, it's definitely not guaranteed. We saw, I believe, uh, I'm afraid to say this name because I don't want to quote it wrong, but I believe it was EtherFi. And they kind of put out a point system. They tallied those up. And then they're like, hey, you can uh, spend these these points on some of our merch. And it's like, okay, that's not what we were going for. Um, but so MarginFi is launching this um, point-based system. They're a lending protocol. So uh, either lending assets to the protocol to you know spin up the borrowing process, it gives you points. And borrowing assets from the protocol gets you points as well. Uh, and then lastly, you can like refer other people to the protocol to kind of like help promote the word of the protocol. Uh, and that gets you points as well. And so again, the, the intent or the idea of this is like, okay, if I earn enough points, that'll increase the size of my airdrop position. Um, and so you've seen people kind of like compound uh, their farming efforts by taking Jito Soul, which is that Jito is like an LST provider based on Solana, taking that asset, depositing it into MarginFi, um, and then kind of like compounding, right? So you get Jito Soul exposure while depositing into MarginFi. It's kind of like a two for one. Um, so, you know, is that the best way to do it? You know, still TBD, really, but it is certainly the most popular way for as of right now. Yeah, I wish there was one example I could point to and say that's like a great example of an airdrop. I don't think we've kind of hit that yet. I think each and every one has had some sort of flaw with it. Um, I think the best one is, has been Arbitrum to date, and I think that's just because you can look at the success it's had that it's had after its airdrop. Or even now it's number two in dex volume to ethereum sometimes even passing it on certain days and this is after incentives and airdrop has been emitted and so i think that's like a clear uh, point to it being a successful airdrop uh, whether the allocation itself or having the airdrop be most of it all at once is a good idea i think has yet to be determined but i think for the most part it's been successful and i would agree with dan that things along the lines of blur or what's happening with these Solana projects where like a point system where people like have a clear roadmap, clear KPIs of what it takes to get the airdrop, but at the same time, not having some sort of clear ROI or clear, here's the number of tokens you're getting and this is how much dollars you're getting um, allows for like more activity because sort of that unknown factor that Arbitrum had um, applies there where people don't know what they're getting, which means they're more likely to um, have higher amounts of activity so overall like if we can see blur have sort of like arbitrum have the same level of activity if not more following its airdrops i think we can therefore point to that as like probably the most successful i'm curious westy though do you um do you think that the arbitrum airdrops success was like like would you i don't know so arbitrum didn't really see a sharp drop off in like you know in total transactions users like there was a bit of a decline but nothing like you know uh astronomical by any means they still have high tvl still have good activity um the the dow is still generating decent revenue from the sequencer and would you say that that's like you know how does how do you think the airdrop really plays into that like i i get the narrative that like oh there's a bit of a wealth effect you know you airdrop everybody a few thousand dollars which is effectively what happened um and they're more likely to stick around and hang out there. And I, I see how that works for an L2. Um, but L2's kind of had a bit of a privileged position, right? They raised at insane valuations and kind of came out predetermined to be, you know, everybody everybody gave that token a range between, I wouldn't say everybody, most sensible people gave that token somewhere an estimated price between like 80 cents and a buck 20, right in line with, you know, what we're seeing on FDV wise between other L2s or current market cap wise. Um, and that's exactly where it came out and is quite frankly still trading. So they kind of had this ability to give everybody a few thousand dollars. And plus that matters a bit more when you're, you know, a base layer, like an L1 or an L2, as opposed to, you know, let's say, you know, I was just a, a new DEX that I was launching on Ethereum, right? Like I, I just, how do you think the dynamics work there? I mean, that's definitely a good point that it being an L2, especially one of the first L2s to, to go live and get adoption. I think that contributed a contributed a lot to it sort of gaining momentum 
and the airdrop sort of continue that flywheel. But at the same time, like having an airdrop and specifically the allure of an airdrop, I, I know the arbitrary airdrop was teased for like a year and a half prior to it even dropping. And so because of that, you're able to sort of create a fly, flywheel on its own over time as more apps develop there because they want to take advantage of all the people who are there to cycle the airdrop. And, you know, as more and more users go there, as more and more apps build there, you sort of build an ecosystem that becomes sustainable over time. And that is the goal of an airdrop is to incentivize activity that is sticky and you sort of create a flywheel where once you get rid of those incentives, it can sort of exist on its own. So I would say like the airdrop and the fact that it was teased for such a long time and that Arbitrum was able to gain that momentum as a result that I would say is successful, whether or not we're looking at the airdrop as an event specifically or all of the, like its incentives leading up to it. I would agree with that. I, I hadn't really thought necessarily about the, you know, obviously Arbitrum waited way longer than, than Optimism, but it's almost the analogy of uh, maybe like HBO versus Netflix, where Netflix kind of dumps everything on you in one weekend and then you watch it when season two comes out, you just can't remember anything, as opposed to Arbit- uh, Arbitrum is HBO and each episode of Game of Thrones come out on a weekly basis and it kind of, you get used to it and you build it and you talk about it and you like it. I feel like Arbitrum was just much better at drawing out the hype and they got you to do so much more up on their ecosystem and you'd been there for so long. They're like, eh, maybe I'm just going to stick around here and now I've got some ARB tokens and they were probably much more successful at, you know, generating that. But I guess if you're a layer two, you've got a couple of different weapons in your tool belt, right? To try to incentivize activity, you've got your airdrop. So there's a strategy around that. Then you've got your sort of emission schedule and then you've got grants that you can dole out. Like Optimism was, they sort of, I think Optimism actually did a pretty good job just in terms of giving out big grants to dApps that wanted to launch on that platform. So it is it is worth pointing out. It's not like airdrops are the the only thing. It's one thing in your your tool belt of uh, different in, in levers to pull. Yeah, it'll be fun to watch what ZK Sync does because they've been teasing a token for quite some time as well. You see heavy airdrop farming there as well. Um, but what's interesting is just based on discussions we've had with the team on our various CRX research podcasts that we've had, they uh, they seem pretty pro the idea that there will be a token that will be used to decentralize the sequencer. Um, and if that's the case, then we talk about the trade-off between airdrop and long-term incentives. You kind of need those long-term emissions where you're you know, rewarding validators for participating uh, honestly within your you know, validating or sequencing process. And uh, that that gets into a whole other interesting piece for Arbitrum and Optimism because, you know, they don't have those long tail emission schedules built into their current token models. And they also don't really have a steadfast way to decentralize their sequencers. So they might run into a problem later down the line that, you know, maybe ZK Sync by launching their token later, launching their chain later might have like a leg up. Uh, and that kind of like, I guess, counteracts the idea of first mover advantage is everything in crypto. Do you guys see that Sonny, the founder of Osmosis, actually tweeted out that proof of stake was a mistake and <laughs> actually had all these people piling on and yeah, John Charbonneau came over the top and said, I might agree with you for rollups and maybe a proof of authority design would actually make a lot more sense, which I thought was <laughs> pretty interesting because decentralizing the sequencer is definitely a more complicated task than I think many of us had originally thought. I want, I want to bookend this this discussion of of airdrops and actually move into talk a little bit about Solana DeFi. So Dan, you were starting to bring this up earlier. Westy, I know you've been digging around deeply in the data of Solana, but I'd love to just get your guys' uh, sort of viewpoint. Solana, originally originally DeFi was one of the, the first use cases that was touted on Solana. And you had Serum, and that was the first pretty exciting example. Now I, I know it, it doesn't look so great in hindsight, but of a central limit order book that was actually possible on chain. Uh, you know, Anatoly did a great job of putting out this vision of sort of consensus of the speed of light and a decentralized exchange that works globally as fast as NASDAQ. And I think it really jazzed everyone up post FTX. I think one of the hardest hit sectors in all of crypto was probably DeFi and Solana. But now you're sort of starting to see this rebirth and this phoenix rise from the ashes, if you will, uh, which I think if you've been poking around and paying attention, there's some great founders that are building in that space. So I would love to just get your guys sort of high level views on how you're viewing Solana DeFi these days, whether or not you think there's some potential there. Is it all just a smoldering wreckage post FTX or what's your sort of view on the whole thing? 
smoldering wreckage is honestly not a bad description of the current state, but uh, I think that's primed for a renaissance to be completely honest. So you know, the idea of a high throughput blockchain makes a lot of sense in a lot of different ways. And man, every time I hear a discussion about like decentralizing the sequencer or uh, you know social consensus or this or that, I'm like, I'm buying more soul, like not financial advice. But it's just every single time that you get into those like steel headed conversations, it just it's tough, man. It really is. And so I'm like one single shard that that idea seems to solve a lot of these problems. And let's just juice the base layer until we can get the through the throughput to where it needs to be. And like, yeah, there's definitely going to be problems that we run into there. But it's not like the other path has no problems either. So um, I'm glad we have teams building modular blockchains, and I'm also glad we have teams focused on maximizing the throughput of a single shard. So um, that's why that's the thesis around why I'm still paying attention to Solana, to be completely honest. It's just the idea that someone is going down the other side of the path where, you know, it's not like it's all sun and sunshine and roses on, on the modular side either. So um, that's what kind of kept my attention there. And then once you start digging in, like there are really, really good teams building. Um, MarginFi and and Jito are, are two teams that I, that's why I'm interested in them. And I mentioned them earlier for potential of an airdrop, which I, I again, I have no idea if that's the case, but um, would be very interested in participating in those ecosystems, most certainly. Um, Jito is building uh, an MEV focused liquid staking solution and MarginFi is like this, this lending protocol. Those are two very core primitives that, Ethereum has done very, very well. Obviously, Lido is kind of dominating the game uh, when it comes to liquid staking, but that is taking uh, an increasingly forefront uh, when it comes to the rest of DeFi. Now, we're seeing like fresh DeFi uh, protocols being built strictly around liquid staking. Super exciting to see that kind of formulate out. Um, And that's also now getting translated over to Solana. And just granted the fact that, you know, Solana kind of it's hard to say what was real and what was, you know, just Al- Alameda uh, kind of forged uh, during the heat of the bull run. But, you know, there's still some interesting tech there and I'm interested in what's to come. So there's teams like uh, Ellipsis uh, being built by, I think it's Phoenix, Phoenix Labs, not, not Eugene. Eugene. Yeah. Super excited about what they're building. Um, just getting the idea of the on-chain board order book back. You know, we, we haven't really figured that out and, I would say DEXs as a whole is probably the most exciting cornerstone of DeFi right now. On on, on Ethereum, you have Uni V4, Ambient, um, Curve V2, their fresh contracts are coming out. And then when you look over in the Cosmos, you have Duality and the new era of Cosmos, or sorry, of Osmosis. And then Solana is really no different. You have Lafinity and uh, Ellipsis while um, OpenBook is kind of coming back online. So it's it's definitely not dead and there's a lot of interesting things being built and you know if you're someone like we keep talking about airdrops i'll bring it back up but if you're someone who like that's what you want to do and go farm airdrops then uh, i would definitely recommend not competing against the cyber bots that are built to be evm compatible and go get in the trenches with you and 10 other people checking out solana DeFi. yeah i think dan hit the nail on the head there um to me i think one of the biggest uh, aspects of blockchain that I think you've sort of forgotten at this point is composability. And some people think, you know, synchronous composability, like within the same block, isn't necessary. But I think it can be a superpower if possible. With Solana, you have the ability for synchronous composability and within like 400 millisecond block times. So you can imagine once you sort of stack these Lego blocks on top of each other, that you would just have very seamless UX experiences across many different apps. And I pulled up a 0x Mert uh, tweet, and it's so funny to see the amount of projects building on Solana DeFi and looking at each one and understanding like the quality of the teams. He has Phoenix, MarginFi, Drift, Zeta, Cypher, Meteora, Jupiter, Mango, Jet. Like The list literally goes on and on and on. He has an entire thread of all these projects building on Solana DeFi. And once you understand how the pieces sort of fit together from one project to another, um, you, you sort of see like, yeah, the DeFi ecosystem is coming back to life. And while like Solana DeFi was sort of plagued by um, FTX's downfall um, last year, I think a lot of the teams have hunkered down. We've seen a lot of new teams come on board and really they seem pretty unfazed by it all. And as soon as we start to see more capital, more users flow back into the ecosystem, I think it's definitely primed for an explosion. 
Yeah, I tend to agree with all of that. And what I would just remind folks who sort of look at Ethereum and Solana and do a compare contrast is I would say in 2019 or 2018, Ethereum did not look like the bulletproof, uh, you know, behemoth market leading smart contract platform that it does today. All these platforms that we like to point to at early successes of crypto, the Uniswaps, the Aves, et cetera. I mean, these things didn't these things didn't really exist. There wasn't an enormous amount to do on chain. And actually, the narrative back then was ICOs were a scam and all of this capital raising stuff that you're doing is illegitimate. And probably Bitcoin is the thing that really makes sense and works. And there's just a lot of, you know, pattern matching that you could do in between the Solana DeFi space today and where Ethereum was in 2018 and 2019. And it's an it's almost an overset meme at this point, but I think sub eighty Ethereum is the same thing as sub, you know, fifteen or twenty dollar soul. You know, that's not gonna be an opportunity that lasts forever, not financial advice, you know. So I just it's worth and and I I think you're exactly right. It's a risk reward thing as well, which is you know, so much is priced into Ethereum. If you, you know, no shade, but if you look at the roll-up space, like how many, you know, 10 to $15 billion, you know, FDV roll-ups can we get before someone says, wait a second, does this uh, ultimately really make that much sense? Or, you know, do you want to look at, you know, the whole market cap of Solana being, you know, sub 50 billion or something? So I tend to agree with you. There's also, there's an interesting, you know, before we move on here, there's an interesting cold start problem that I think if Solana solved, they'd be more off to the races. There is this virtual virtuous cycle between liquid staking and DeFi that doesn't quite exist in Solana. So for basically, if you had to do sort of a user journey, right, for people in Ethereum, the very first thing that you do is buy Ethereum on a centralized exchange. Then you move that to a MetaMask wallet. Then you liquid stake that. Then you take your liquid staking token and you use it in DeFi and you compound your yield, right, taking a minimal amount of risk. The problem in, in Solana is is twofold, is that one, you don't have a robust DeFi ecosystem yet, and or you you did, you just had a you know, gigantic eighteen uh, wheeler drive right through it. And then two is that the uh, you know the adoption for liquid staking is just so much lower. So you kind of have these two fundamental building blocks that you haven't been able to kickstart that virtuous cycle yet. That I think would really kick off a Solana DeFi summer. But they're a great team. Like Gito is trying to solve that. Marinade is trying to solve that. And once that gets solved, I mean then you're kind of off to the races. And you could either view that as a problem or you could be like, this is a really solvable, <laughs> this is a solvable problem. And once that gets kicked off, you know, could be gangbusters. Yeah, I, I strongly agree with that. I think um, I think you're going to see like uh, a curve like Dex get built on Solana where, you know, it has above average tech uh, that and that just chucks incentives at the wall and people will build projects to come make a token to stick it to pool on that protocol that dex and participate in the rewards ecosystem you could you could argue that frax would not exist if curve did not exist if you look just at their liquid staking token uh, they use a two token model and the unstaked version requires an external yield to be an attractive solution um and so that gets generated through Curve, and that's what Curve was built to do. So it's kind of like this symbiotic relationship for the two protocols. But um, then you start like zooming out and say, okay, well, how many other protocols have been built on top of Curve? Uh, Convex, StakeDAO, Conic, Concentrator, the list goes on. Well, how many protocols have been built on top of Frax? There's there's also quite a few. And Sommelier, uh, which is a Cosmos chain, actually just integrated Frax. So you see like this this flywheel cycle that starts to happen when there's like this one you know maybe liquidity hub or incentive hub or that kind of helps kickstart the flywheel you're talking of um and then you need like a solid lending protocol for sure because leverage is kind of what spins the entire world not just crypto um and the other thing i find interesting is solana if you just like you know hey follow a few of their uh, more popular i I don't want to say influencers but people who are like live and breathe the solana ecosystem um, you know, they are actually focused on building apps that people want to use. And that gets touted heavily by Anatoly himself, which that's also a bit of a culture shift from Ethereum, which not necessarily a bad thing or a good thing. It's just something I've noticed where Ethereum is focused on building, building out like a scalable solution because that's what it needs to do. Where Solana is like, hey, like, let's load this thing up. Like, let's get people on chain. Like, that is their chief focus right now. And I find that super interesting. So we might even see something un- that's not DeFi related really be the Kickstarter for Solana. I wonder if they sort of take a page out of ETH DeFi's book 
whether it's sort of like creative solutions to to bootstrap LSDs, whether that be interest rate derivatives. I know Pendle's been doing really well recently. Uh, whether that be you know stable coins backed by LSTs. I think there's a lot of creativity going on in the ETH ecosystem that Solana could maybe pick up on and do more efficiently. So I wonder if they sort of take a book out of that page. I actually, I want to move on and get your your thoughts on liquid staking because that's the the subject of this this uh, series is um a uh, topic. But before we do, I actually want to plug Permissionless because we're doing a Solana. First of all, Permissionless is the event that we do with Bankless. Going to be the biggest best event in all of uh, DeFi and crypto uh, more broadly. That's happening September 11th through the 13th in Austin, Texas this year. Uh, Dan and Westy are going to be down there, so a little extra incentive. And we're doing a great Solana DeFi panel, which made me think of this. And we're actually going to have MarginFi, uh, Eugene from uh, Ellipsis. We're going to have uh, Lucas from Gito and Bartosz from Cube Exchange, all talking about Solana DeFi. Going to be an absolutely fire panel. We're going to be talking about the roll-up ecosystem, account abstraction, a whole bunch of really cool stuff. So discount code BELLCURVE30. So you get 30% off if you're listening to this. See you there. Um, all right, but I want to move on to liquid staking more broadly and get your perspective, Westy. So you actually wrote a great piece on this for sort of the state of LSTFI in general. And would love to kind of just get your sense of how you break out the ecosystem at a high level some of the interest, like what's driving activity today, and then what's some of the more interesting experimentation that you see going on there? Yeah, it's a great question. So I actually split up sort of LST5 as a whole into five buckets. The first one is sort of like leverage staking, where people basically take their, their LSDs, borrow ETH against them, stake them into LSTs again, and sort of loop that. And Aave made that particularly popular and more specifically with Steeth as the specific LST. And that was actually a major driver in, in Steeth's supply growth over the past year was its use in looped leverage. Um, and so you have Aave as sort of like the main uh, protocol for the loop leverage, but you also have you know other leverage protocols such as Gearbox starting to pop up, which do something similar and try and maybe have sort of higher risk strategies, but with higher potential yield. And so that's sort of like the first category. The second is sort of within AMMs and providing liquidity. So because LSTs are correlated to ETH, you can have sort of LST ETH pairs and you're able to basically not only get the yield from the LST side of that LP pair, but also the yield coming from uh, trading fees and also potential incentives from DEXs or through some something like a, a curve model where these LSTs provide incentives to basically bribe voters to have to drive more incentives to their pools. And so that's a great way to sort of drive adoption. Curve has obviously become the number one DEX for LST trading, but you have Balancer and Aura that have specific um, sort of designs around LSTs and trying to bootstrap that. And so I think they could potentially give Curve a run for their money, as well as, you know, Uniswap V3 and potentially V4. I'm going to guess they, they have some sort of LST strategy. And then from there, you sort of have LST baskets, which are meant to like diversify your risk into different LSTs. But really, you're, you're, you're adding additional risk because now you have a new smart contract you need to worry about. Um, but you also have the ability to have sort of like a convex-like platform where now that you have some sort of treasury and a bunch of LSTs, you can build products based on that, whether that be you know, new AMMs um, or something along those lines to bootstrap yield and bootstrap, you know, more of the LST in, in your treasury. And then from there, I think the final two are probably the most interesting and I've seen probably the most growth as of late, which are uh, LST-backed stablecoins. So you have Libra, I think it's pronounced, where you basically have LST-backed stablecoin and it's a, it's a rye fork where you have basically no interest loans um, on the back of your LST. Uh, and then you have other projects that are launching that are very similar. You have Prisma, I believe, is launching pretty soon, which is looking to basically enter into the Curve Complex flywheel. You have um, other other projects as well. Raft is another one, uh, which is another Rye fork. Um, but basically, they all take different design decisions, whether they're you know hard bagging to the US dollar, because you know in the case of Libra, the stablecoin itself is accruing a portion of the staking yield that's backing it. 
And as a result, you know, there's basically higher incentive to hold the stable coin than there is to borrow against the LST. And so as a result, you know, the peg obviously is going to increase against the US dollar. And that could have a problem when it comes to those that have uh, borrow positions. And so hard coding, hard coding to the US dollar might pose a lot of risks to the protocol. But at the same time, you know, soft pegging to the US dollar, obviously you're not going to have the same stability. Um, and so there's sort of trade-offs that different projects make. And there's a lot of experimentation here. And I think these are the projects that have grown, I think, the most out of all of LST Phi on a percentage basis. Libra has seen immense growth over the past month, particularly. And so that's like a pretty interesting area to look at. And the final one is interest rate derivatives. So basically, Pendle is a good example because they've been growing like crazy recently, where basically they're a split token protocol where you can basically take a yield-bearing token and split its principal and yield components. And from there, you're able to have certain strategies that you wouldn't be able to otherwise utilize, such as trading sort of the yield on a specific token or maybe buying a discounted token prior to its expiration date. There's a lot of different strategies that are involved. And as a result, Pendle has been able to basically create LST pools for these split tokens that are incentivized. And a lot of people have locked up their capital uh, to deploy certain strategies and increase their yield. And I think, you know, as we go forward and staking becomes sort of like the risk-free rate almost within DeFi, I think there's going to be a lot of interesting products around trading the interest rate uh, around ETH. And so, uh, yeah, those final two buckets as a whole, I think, are the, the fastest growing and the most exciting. The Pendle stuff is really interesting. I I admittedly haven't done too big a deep dive there, but does that like effectively make give you the ability to like go long ETH staking rewards? Yeah, it's interesting. So like, like I said, you have like a principal and a yield token, and each of those have an expiration date. And as you get closer to the expiration date, if you hold the yield token, you basically get paid out that yield and the actual value of the token sort of falls towards zero as you get closer to the expiration date. And the principal token is sort of like discounted versus its par value. And you can buy it discounted and then wait until it gets to its expiration date and it's going to converge on its basically actual value. And so as a result, you can like sort of trade the yield tokens if you think all of a sudden there's going to be a ton of MEV coming up in yield staking in ETH staking yield, you can buy the yield token, hope that appreciates in price because it's pricing in its future yield. And or you can maybe short the token if you think there's a huge MEV event and it's not going to be sustainable and it's going to come down. So yeah, there is a way to basically trade the yield token. I'm not sure if it's the most um, capital efficient or makes like the best way to trade it. I think there are other models that are coming out that are probably better when it comes to specifically trading the yield on Steve. But at the same time, you know, it's pretty good for what we got now. And obviously they've been able to bootstrap that liquidity. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting experimentation going on. Wesley, one thing that I've heard uh, that might actually act as slight pushback, but I want to get your perspective on it, is uh, one, in, in doing the research, and we actually recorded with Hasu this morning, and that's going to come out uh, next Tuesday, which is a great episode. But his perspective is that LST Phi is a little bit of a meme, and actually some of the majors in DeFi, they all basically accept liquid staking tokens as collateral. So if your advantage is that you only work with liquid staking tokens, then that's not ultimately really a moat and that you're just going to get eaten by the majors. So what would you respond to that pushback? I think that's a pretty fair take. To me, like LSTs are a great bootstrapping mechanism, especially now that we're only at like 20% of ETH stakes. And I think there's a lot of room to grow when it comes to liquid staking growth, staking as a whole. As a result, like right now, if you're a new protocol, it's the best way to capitalize on that and create TVL and create excitement and activity. Um, and so like going back to the airdrop conversation, using your token now to bootstrap that liquidity that's sticky, that stays in potentially your treasury or within TVL of the protocol, I think is a really good move because you know I don't think there's going to be many opportunities to bootstrap this amount of capital in the future. And so, yeah, the way I see it is this is sort of like bootstrapping mechanisms for these new protocols and it's sort of what they do from here. That's the bigger question. So obviously just having LSTs back your stablecoin is probably not the most optimal, but sort of starting with that and sort of capturing the narrative and then pivoting from there, I think is where we're going to separate the winners from the losers. I want to move in and talk a little about a 
as sort of a combination of DEX and AMM design, which I feel like is becoming a much hotter topic. You guys have done some great interviews on ZeroX Research with Doug Colkit of Ambient Finance and most recently Sunny Agarwal of Osmosis. But I want to talk a little bit about Blur and your thoughts on NFTs in general. So we talked about this last week, so I don't feel the need to go way more in detail about it. But Azuki had what I would, would call a, a pretty disastrous mint the last week where they they raised an additional like 38 million or so, like just under $40 million worth of capital with these new elemental uh, Azukis and basically the exact same art, which is, it's almost funny, right? And the community was very upset. I understand there's going to be some sort of a lawsuit and a floor. It's actually one of the, it's one of the first times I think I've ever seen crypto markets respond perfectly efficiently. They doubled the supply of tokens and the floor price fell 50%. So, you know, you've got an efficient market here, guys. That finally makes, makes some sense. But since then, the Pac-Man, the, the founder of Blur came out with a tweet it, one of the interesting things that I frankly didn't understand a lot is the Azuki floors tend, seemed like it dragged a whole bunch of other NFT floor prices with it. So no, no, nothing else was down 50%, I don't think, but it was all down 20 or 30%. And now you're starting to see this idea of how the death of NFTs. Um, and Blur, uh, Pac-Man's, Blur's founder, Pac-Man, came out and basically had this sort of defensive Twitter post and said this wasn't Blur that killed NFTs. It was the action frankly called the point of the finger at Azuki, but I'd be curious to get your guys' take on the state of the NFT market and what impact, if any, do you think Blur had? I, uh, I, I don't know. I, maybe it's a controversial take, but I'm just, I think PFP, NFT, the, the whole craze around that mark, corner of the market, that was a 2020, 2021 phenomenon. I think this is going one direction and it's not up. Um, the idea of digital art being in, in, in the form of an NFT, that will never go away. That will be a, a continually growing market. Luxury art, well, that's just how it works. And the fact that it's now digital seems like a great idea to me. I think you know, my generation probably leans towards favoring more digital things. And the one generation below me will most certainly be favoring more digital things. So yeah. um, I'm, I'm bullish on the idea of NFT-based art, specifically art. <laughs> Uh, and the goose is a great example of this that just recently sold for around five million dollars. I, I, yeah, that, that I'm bullish on that idea. I'm also bullish on the idea of using the underlying technology of NFTs to power very interesting crypto-based solutions. An example of this would be like a block-based futures market. Um, so the rights to order a the transactions within a specific block is inherently valuable. And each block is different, non-fungible. So using an NFT to represent that the the rights of ordering a certain block uh, is in, becomes a very interesting thing. Uh, and so that's like a cool use case where NFTs could power uh, more of like a, a actual crypto native product. Um, another example is maybe like Uniswap using uh, L- NFTs for their LP position. So uh, not necessarily the best example, just because there's a lot of inefficiencies around that. But nonetheless, it is like interesting experimentation with the underlying technology. But I just don't see how the next, like the PFP collections, 10K of these like shitty pictures, it's just not, it's, it's I, I'm bearish. I don't know how else to say it. I, I'm not excited about it. It is not interesting. And I do think it will go away. There will be a new form of gambling that takes the place in the role of the PFP NFT marketplace. Um, that's just kind of my two cents on the matter. But uh, so yeah, I, I don't think it's Blur's fault. I think they are just a market participant, and I, I just okay. Like if I'm an Azuki holder and I got the exact same metadata NFT as one I already had, yeah, I'm gonna be pissed. But am I really gonna be excited if I got a picture that just looked different? Like, like no, I you just gave me another uh, worthless picture, and like no, they weren't worthless before, but. I don't think the floor price would have taken much of a different move. Again, you doubled the supply and it got cut in half. Like that's what else did you expect was going to happen? I don't know. I, I, I'm just not excited about the state of NFTs and probably won't continue to be. I think there's two different discussions here, which is what is the long-term future of PFP collections? And then there's the immediate, the sort of proximate cause of the NFT bear market and blurs impact, if any. Um, what goes up must come down. 
I think I, I don't think anyone should be wildly shocked that the market for JPEGs uh, went down as much as it you know, it had a meteoric rise and this was always inevitable to some degree. I do think it's in, in it. We were talking about this a little bit before we got online, but I think there is a liquidity cuts both ways a little bit. And it was a great Uncommon Core episode, one of the early ones where DGen Spartan laid out this framework for why DeFi topped so, so far before the rest of the market. And the idea was, he he actually talked about sushi swap being the uh, the cause of the the DeFi summer top, and the reason was that was you know it was sort of the fork of Uniswap, and it was the first one to experiment with pool twos and do all this very risky, very extreme incentivization of liquidity on the platform. And it basically, if in in a bull market when everything is going up, that's fine. But if you are a whale sitting on a whole bunch of illiquid DeFi tokens and you see this as the golden, maybe last opportunity to sell, you're going to sell, right? So there's probably a similar analogy here between uh, Blur and Blend, where the if you are sitting on a whole bunch of JPEGs and you realize that they were not going to the moon and ultimately you were looking to sell, but up until that point, the market, the liquidity conditions just hadn't been fit. And all of a sudden you had an opportunity to sell you would probably sell. So I think there's a direct analogy to be made there. So liquidity kind of cuts both ways. And I come down on, on Pac-Man's side of things. It's it's not it's not their fault, I don't think. This was always just sort of bound to happen. But then I also think that there's a, a discussion to be had about the future of PFP NFTs. I would agree with some parts of what you said, Dan, but I would also push back a little bit. I think there's an interesting question. Frankly, it would be an interesting poll to get done across different age groups but you know if you could spend you know $2,500 keep in mind that's you know about one ETH right like one ETH on uh, a nice suit or like a sick NFT I don't know it's uh, you uh, that I have to think about right because depending on what I get with that NFT if it actually if I feel like it actually affords me status who knows I mean I'm addicted to Twitter my god I mean I, I, I go on Twitter far more than I than I wear a suit and that's kind of a cute example but I uh, had talked about this becoming a, a pudgy shill here, but yeah, I talked to Luca, one of the the co-founders of Pudgy, and he just had such a refreshing take on you know what it took to build a brand, and I mean look at what they've done. They've actually sold penguins. You know they're talking about licensing the image of Pudgy. It's just go old fashioned, just slap some Pudgy penguins on pajamas, and maybe you sold the white pajamas for ten bucks. You sold the the license image for for fifteen, and you have a great income stream there. So I think. To be honest, there were a lot of founders that were pretty opportunistic in the NFT space. They saw the chance to just raise ungodly amounts of money, but they didn't necessarily know how to actually, once they've launched the NFT brands, how to how to build that IP. And what you'll probably see is the wheat gets separated from the chaff and a whole bunch of founders that are more like have more actual experience in building lasting IP and generating revenue step in and do that. And I think the last thing the, that Azuki was a great example of is I don't know if you've ever heard the the framework of you have to earn the right to launch a new product. Like it's very tempting to oh like this isn't really working. Let's just launch a new product. You know, really the the great the product greats over the years have kind of this framework of your customers. You need to have basically saturated what your customers want, really hit it out of the, the park with your current soft service offering before you can launch another. I think it's the same thing with mints, right? If I think Azuki would have gone very differently if there was this whole sort of character and identity introduced by the original collection and they had done all of these different things to monetize it. And then within that general sort of storyline and community, there was a reason to launch another set of NFTs that complemented the Azuki originals. They were slightly different. There was a different identity. Then that mint would have worked. But if your whole business model is to just mint new JPEGs and create a perpetual motion machine, then that's not going to work. So that was a bit of a rambling explanation, but that's kind of my thoughts. Way too much logic when I could just go sell some JPEGs for $38 million. But uh, no, no, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think there will be, there will definitely be PFP NFTs that stick around and stay around and will always be a thing. There is value in culture. I, I do buy that narrative. Uh, I just really don't see uh, like, okay, the NFT market exploded last bull run. And all it literally was, was taking a random series of pictures and selling them and then they're going straight to zero. And that happened over and over and over again. And maybe it's too optimistic to think that market participants are will be wiser over time. But I, 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 I will be, I will eat my words if that happens again. Yeah. 
And I agree with everything you said, Mike, that we're going to have some winners come out of this. But at the same time, like for me, I think the most valuable projects, the ones that will uh, have the highest returns are those with the clean slate that are sort of the new shiny objects that have new ideas, new like creative things that they're building. You know, the 10,000 PFP collection, I think is kind of done. Like that's been done a million times. So once people start to iterate of new sort of creative ideas, I think people are just going to latch onto that. And because you have, you know, a clean slate, you don't have a price chart to look at for history. Like people are just, I think, going to bid the new projects as opposed to the old. Yeah, I tend to agree with that too. All right. I I think that's probably good for NFTs. Well, maybe we could close on this idea of uh, DeFi 1.0 catching a bid. I actually was reminding myself when we were talking about DGen Spartan. Have you ever seen his DeFi bear progress chart obeter thing? Yeah. So I, I, I was following it for a little bit, but I saw a tweet the other day. All right. This comes from, this was a Mika Honkasalo tweet that we are actually right now in July is month 35 of the DeFi bear market. So obviously 36 months is something that DGen Spartan pulled out of his, pulled out of his ass, but you know, it has been, it, it's funny because DeFi was a little bit idiosyncratic with the rest of the market. It led the market and experienced the bear market earlier. And it's really just been down in the depths for such a long period of time. And I'd, I'd be curious, you know, Maker, it's a, it actually looked like was catching a bid for the first time in, in quite a long time recently. And that with even the backdrop of Endgame, which I'm not sure anyone really understands, you know, is sort of acting as a headwind. So I'd be curious, what do you guys think of the current state of DeFi? Is it posed for you know, some potential, I know it's tough to call after almost three straight years of downward price action, but what do you guys think? Yeah, I think part of the price action we've seen over the past couple of weeks has been really like kicked off by comp specifically. Like comp has been the outlier. And I think that was people anticipating the super state drop from Leshner and a potential, you know, partnership or some synergies between the two projects. And as a result, I think a lot of other projects sort of there was sort of like a beta trade on comp specifically. And I think that drove a lot of the specific price action. But at the same time, like DeFi 1.0, a lot of these projects are definitely primes because if you look at their charts, they've been basically down only since mid 2021. It's been pretty sad to be honest, like especially Maker has been hit pretty bad. And Maker, especially as of recent, has gotten a lot of traction when it comes to you know onboarding RWAs, having new loans, like the die saving trade is now over 3%. Um, and they're, I think, on on pace for like nine figures in in profits over the next year, which is pretty incredible. And I think it's been overlooked simply based on the fact that people don't want to buy a token that's like falling constantly over time. And so as a result, I think, you know, Maker specifically has bottomed at this point and is continuing to increase their revenues over time. You know, synthetics has pivoted a lot over the years, but they're another one that, you know, tops the charts constantly when it comes to applications generating revenue on a daily basis through their purpose product. Um, so they're another great example of a DeFi 1.0 project that's sort of been oversold and is, has like a clear roadmap towards profitability. And, you know, you can point to a lot of these other projects as well as being in a similar boat. And I think it's a pretty funny coincidence that that bear market timing does line up to uh, DGen Spartan's uh, sort of timeline. Uh, but yeah, I think it de- D5 1.0 is definitely poised for for a comeback. Yeah, I don't have the uh, the numbers right in front of me right now, but uh, if you want to take like a fundamental approach and, and if that's just, you know, there's merit to that and also, you know, the reality of that not being the best metrics for crypto in its current state, but if that's what you were looking at, um, you know, on a price to fees or price to, to sales ratio, Maker actually is one of the few protocols you could say was arguably undervalued. And to your point, Mike, they do have like a huge headwind in the end game. There are probably five people that truly understand what the end game is. And those five people work for Maker. Uh, one of them is Rune. So there's really not that much clarity around it. But um it could be a headwind. It could be a tailwind. It's it's really just too hard to say. So there could be some pricing in of, of just execution risk there. To be completely honest, um, but yeah, to Wesley's point, they're they're 
they're generating cash flows and that might be exciting at some point. Um, there's a lot of talk in, in the crypto Twitter circles, of course, that uh, cash flow is bearish, right? Because then you can actually price these things and it turns out we actually don't like the prices that those turn into. Um, but you know, the reality is, is Maker was cheap relative to its peers. So I'm not too surprised it's catching a bid here. Um, Aave kind of has this narrative of the it's stablecoin Go coming out soon. Uh, the current status of that is like any day now, but to be fair, it's been any day now for a couple of weeks. Aave companies uh, has built the contracts, audited the contracts. They are good to go. Uh, Aave Chan has handled the governance side of things. It's greenlit from both angles. Uh, just kind of honestly waiting for the on-chain proposal. Uh, so there's a bit of alpha. Keep your eyes on the Aave governance contract for uh, the Go proposal. But the thing that I'm finding interesting is, you know, these a lot of these DeFi 1.0 projects had genius teams that actually wanted to build a true DeFi protocol that solved, a, you know, some sort of sort of financial problem. Um, and their teams never gave up during the bear market. And so now they're two or three years into their life and they're putting out the best versions of those products. Again, we've seen Maker has created a pretty fairly resilient stablecoin, and they're continuing to improve on it, kind of migrating away from the PSM uh, into a more like AMO model. And then you have Curve that uh, you know updated their DEX contracts to the most advanced passive AMM model we've seen, and they've created a revolutionary lending protocol that kind of removes the need for or mitigates the need for a hard liquidation. It kind of goes to this collateral conversion process, and you've seen Aave launching their own stablecoin. So you've seen this like continued development from these large, well-respected teams in the space. And, you know, they they currently have the best pro- the best products. Curve has the most TVL, second most trading volume. Uniswap's got the most trading volume, launching UniV4. Aave's got the most borrow outstanding of any protocol. Like if there were assets to go buy in DeFi, like it's it doesn't shock me that these are the ones getting the true attention right now. Yeah, I agree with that take. It's probably worth pointing out as well that some of the majors you know, Curve, Ave, Maker, they all seem to be converging on a similar business model. And they all, it actually reminds me a little bit of there was a race in C5 back in 2019 or 2020 to build Prime Brokerage. And it started from the, a bunch of businesses started from a very different vantage point. Some of them started from the perspective of lending, the BlockFi's of the world. Some of them started from the perspective of custody, the BitGo's or the Anchorage's of the world. Some of them did cap intro or whatever they did. Uh, but everyone converged on this idea of, of prime brokerage, and you're starting to see a very similar mo- sort of convergence within the the um, the business model for some of the DeFi majors. So Dai originally started, or Maker obviously started as a stablecoin with Dai. Aave was exclusively borrow lend, and now you're starting to see all of those those models converge. And I think they're I am torn about how I think about this because I think in the one sense, if you were it just depends on the organizational structure behind them. Because if you're a traditional sort of company, this makes all the sense in the world. The The bear case for looking at something like the DeFi protocols that exist today is you take sort of a non-prof banks to a whole bunch of different things, right? Like an investment bank has a whole bunch of different functions. You could make the argument that something like Aave takes a very unprofitable part of that bank and just makes it a software. And you're like, well, how exciting is that really? I'm not 100% sure. It's banks are much more exciting when you have all of those different services bundled into one. So you can have certain services that can be loss leaders, and then you can be net interest margin or some of, you know, kind of lead into some of the the higher margin activities. On the other hand, you know, you have to be have a very rigid hierarchy and the actual corporate structure of a bank makes a lot of sense for that. Whereas one concern that I have, like the DAOs that I kind of like, or frankly, the Lidos that are trying to limit the surface area of what they do and minimize the decisions that governance can make, these protocols are going in the opposite direction of that. And they're actually expanding their managerial surface area and they're expanding the amount of complexity that the DAO has to manage. And that, I can see the pros and cons for frankly both sides of that argument. And I think we just have to wait and time will tell how it all plays out. That's an interesting point. It's just like governance overall, like no one's figured that out. No one even has gotten close to figuring that out. Uh, it's kind of cool we're seeing new ideas come to fruition, right? The idea of sub DAOs is actually being executed on by MakerDAO. Um, Frax has been, uh, you know, working on their FraxGov, which is like some sort of trade-off between having a team that's using a multi-sig to really push forward change and innovation and like actual execution, 
but having the token holders like you know be like a gatekeeper to some critical level changes uh, that seems like a really cool model and so we've we're kind of seeing some uh, some interesting exploration there but I I think I tend to agree that less governance is better it's just like that's that's one of those things that it needs to be an end state that you build towards not like somewhere you start at like hey ungovernance protocol like we're a no governance protocol okay well we're a rapidly growing industry and you're going to need to make some changes in in the current state but i like the end goal of kind of reducing overall governance and i think that the final thing to add there is there's probably a, a sort of stack which depends on how close you are to the base layer infrastructure like if you consider ethereum sort of the base layer infrastructure and it's trying to create like a money or commodity that powers smart contracts it then that maybe the next layer up is what ethereum has decided to outsource but are still critical functions for ethereum so that could be block building in the form of swab and flashbots that could be liquid staking in the form of lido that could be restaking in the form of eigenlayer but those things there's a it's not actually antithetical to making a good product but decentralization is is a requirement for the products actually and then maybe one layer up from that would be like borrow lend and dexes and then maybe there'd be games on the top and let's be honest no one really cares that these, these games don't need to be as decentralized as ethereum here those are games it doesn't matter as much so i think it also depends on where you sit in the overall stack as well one last thing i'd love to get your take on guys so lido recently passed a proposal to uh transition a bunch of its ethereum and its treasury to uh steve so on the one hand, I, I could see this being good. Uh, you know, Steeth is yield bearing. So that's, uh, you know, some extra essentially net interest that, that Lido's treasury is earning that it wasn't earning before. On the other hand, a treasury is supposed to be a rainy day fund. And you'd really need that treasury if there was a problem with Steeth itself. Um, so it seems like you might be taking out a little bit of unnecessary risk there. But then at the same time, if there was some kind of catastrophic slashing event with Steeth, Probably all that ETH in the treasury isn't going to help anyway. So I, I'd be curious to get what are you guys, what are your guys' takes on this? I think your last point hits the nail on the head. And like quickly pulling it up, um, Lido has fourteen and a half billion dollars of TVL. I think they're. I think the proposals. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the proposals for twenty million dollars of treasury ETH to be converted to Steeth. Like, I mean, that's not even gonna. It's not even get close to covering you. Plus, you know, if something critical happened to stake ETH. Lido is probably toast anyway, so you know I, I don't I don't hate the going all in on your own token thing in this case. Um, this is a bit of like dog fooding it, like hey, like we're doing it with our treasury, you should too, kind of thing. Maybe, but more so, it's just like look, if we put twenty million dollars in there and we can earn five percent a year, we can actually pay our our core team off of staked ETH yield, and that would be kind of a cool a cool thing to do with that. So I think it actually makes sense. I I, I like the idea. Yeah, I mean, I'm for the most part for it, but I think Mikey brought up a great point, and it's like, what is the ETH in the treasury supposed to be used for? Is it supposed to be a rainy day fund where if Steeth falls below peg, you can use that ETH to basically bid up Steeth back to peg? Is If so, then you want ETH in your treasury and not Steeth. But I'm guessing that most of the treasury is going to be used for to pay for devs or for certain initiatives, etc. And so having it in Steeth, I think is fine. Yeah, it kind of like increases the risk of a slashing event, but really not enough for it to be an issue because they're already sort of taking that on as a protocol. Um, so like as a whole, I don't think it's a bad proposal. I think it's pretty good. Um, but if it were me, I'd be a little more cautious, maybe like 80% stake from 20% not. But yeah, overall, not not too bad. What's your take on this, Mike? I don't know. I Nobody runs these treasuries how I would run them. So I, I guess I'm just not not think of the same. I, I just, I think the treasury is the one thing you don't want to take even an ounce of risk on. And it's actually kind of similarly to how I think about, you know, my holdings of ETH versus stake ETH. This is, this was the analogy that I had with BlockFi as well, which is, you know, if you think that the asset that you're holding is going to appreciate, you know, it's high risk asset. So might appreciate 10 to 20 X over the course of the next, you know, five years or something like that on a conservative, you know, estimate for some of these assets. Are you going to add an additional layer of smart contract risk that I can't diligence at all, uh, you know, for an F extra three or four percent per year? You know, I know Warren Buffett would get his calculator out and tell me how much money I'm losing by not doing that. But that's just not how my brain works. And I don't know. That's the uh, side. 
I I would run things a lot more conservatively if you waved a magic wand and I was in charge of everyone's treasuries. It would basically all be in. I would make the assets masked liabilities, which is also why I like ETH, uh, because if there was ever some sort of you know slashing event, even a more minor one, and you had to do a payout or you had to defend the peg, like I think you could actually make a really good case for ETH sitting in Lido's treasuries. But if you're almost any other protocol, I'm sitting in. Yeah, I'm sitting in basically 100% USDC. I think that's just the safe thing to do. Because you actually got in my head about that. I had, really? I had, I had most of my ETH staked as staked ETH, and then you got in my head about that, and I'm like, "What am I doing?" Of course, the other half of mine is like, you know, time locked for a year in convex in frax ETH, so the complete other end of the spectrum. So I'm like, "All right, maybe we meet one half on the zero risk side and one half on the max risk side." You know what though it's a good it's a good reminder that these this time when you don't feel like taking risk is the time to take risk and the, like the time to be bearish was 18 months ago that was the time to be bearish this is not the time to be bearish you want to be bullish in this in this period of time so maybe that maybe that's a good thought to end it on not financial none of this is financial advice for the love of god uh, and guys if you're listening to this on the on the bell curve thief definitely head over to zero x research because these guys are I'm biased, but these guys are awesome and uh, they dump out some alpha every single week consistently. So definitely head over and check them out at Blockworks Research as well. Yeah, yeah. We'll put a link in the show notes to uh, the Blockworks Research fresh new landing page. Shout out to, to Dennis, our CTO. Really, really went uh, above and beyond on that one. But yeah, Mike, it's been fun, man. Thank you. This was fun, guys. Thanks for joining me.